would you turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 22. And so as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we're going to be taking up our Easter offering for the month of April. And there's the special envelopes on the seats in front of you. And if you want to fill one of those out and give to it, you can place it in the offering box in the entryway. Uh, one of those uh, gentlemen that was baptizing is actually one of the church planners in our association in Sanger. So I think we'll get to hear his story uh, this, uh, over this month. And uh, the gentleman who was talking was Kevin Azell. He was the one who, during the Creek Fire, called me and gave our church $5,000 to uh, help distribute uh, to those who have been displaced by the Creek Fire. So we personally, as a church, have benefited from this Easter offering. So uh, I, our goal is $800, and I have no doubt that you all will, that we all will meet that together. Well, if you are able to, would you please stand as we read God's Word together? Acts chapter 2, verse 22. God's word says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make known to me, you you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you raised Jesus up. And by doing so, proved and demonstrated that he is both Lord and Christ. He is both our Savior and our Lord God, I ask now that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Who killed Jesus? Who was responsible 
before his death. A couple of years ago, Megan and, and her family and I, we were able to go to Israel and go visit Jerusalem. And our tour guide took us from spot to spot all around the city. Took us from the Mount of Olives to the, the, the overlooking the Temple Mount to the different areas on the road that Christ likely walked as he went to the cross. And at every stop, our tour guide asked that question. Who killed Jesus? Was it the mob? Was it Pilate? Who killed Jesus? I remember standing there at the very first spot. I think I turned to Megan and said, we did. We got ahead of our tour guide a little bit, but it was a great tour. But who was responsible? Was it Judas? Was it, was it Pilate? Was it the mob? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the Jewish crowd that cried out, crucify? Who was responsible? Did you kill Jesus? Not, no, 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 were you physically there? Not, not, were you the one who physically nailed him to the cross? But are you responsible for his death? If you respond to that by saying, no, 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 I'm not responsible for his death, then you don't understand what Peter and what the Bible is saying here. As we come to Acts chapter 2, picking up in verse 22, it's the second half of Peter's Pentecost sermon. He had... He had described at the very beginning that God's, he is describing here that God is endorsing Jesus, his son, as Lord and Christ. He's saying, look, he has proven that he is both Lord and Christ, both ruler and Messiah, both king and savior. And the question before us today is, will we accept what God has said about Jesus or will you deny him? Will you accept God's affirmation of Jesus as your own savior and Lord or will you deny him? The first part of this sermon, Joe, uh, uh, Peter is showing the unique events of Pentecost. He's describing the Spirit falling on the church and, and how those who are being fi filled with the Spirit is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 where God had promised that He would one day send His Spirit and how those who would trust in Christ would be filled with the Holy Spirit and they would be prophetic witnesses to the ends of the earth. But what are they to be witnesses of. And that's what the second part of Peter's sermon here is about. What are we as followers of Jesus to be witnesses of? Witnesses to who Christ is. So who is the one that God has made both Lord and Christ? That's what Peter is explaining here. In, in verse 22 he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He, he's addressing his listeners directly. He's calling their attention specifically to Jesus. He's saying, who was attested to them by God? And how was he? It was Jesus. And how was he attested? Well, through God's power, demonstrated in Christ's life, through the work, through these mighty works, these miracles that Jesus was doing they were God's endorsement of Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. These miracles, Peter is saying, are signs that proved how God was working through Jesus. And really, what those miracles of Jesus that you read about all throughout the Gospels, they're giving His people a glimpse of His kingly power, of how He had authority over disease, and authority over sickness, and authority over sin, and even... The ability to forgive sins. 
Only God's king could do that. Only the one true Lord had the authority to do such works. Jesus' miracles gave His people a glimpse of what it's going to be like in eternity, where there will be no sickness. We long for that, right? Where there's no death, there's no disease, there's no virus, and there's no death. And the result of these mighty works was, was meant to produce awe and wonder to all of those who saw and heard. And Peter is saying, look, you saw these acts, not even a matter of weeks ago. He's saying, you saw them. You heard about them. Jesus did these works in your midst. These aren't made up. These miracles were not stories that were deceitfully crafted to lead people astray. Because Peter is saying, you saw them. And as Paul wrote, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time after he was raised. Peter is speaking to over 3,000 people here. And he's saying, you saw them. Jesus did these acts in your midst. They saw them, but what did they do? Despite seeing those mighty works that Jesus was doing in their midst, what did they do? This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up to the de- according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. He says, despite seeing all these works that Jesus did, you crucified and you killed him. They had seen God's endorsement of Jesus through the works that He was doing, yet they rejected and they killed the Lord's anointed. How could they do such a thing? How could they reject? And not just reject Jesus, but kill the Messiah. How could they kill and crucify Jesus, the Christ? If Jesus performed these mighty works in their midst, how could they kill Him? Well, we see that this was also according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This happened. Man crucified their Savior. And it was all part of God's definite plan and foreknowledge. The plan that God had established before the foundations of the world were even set. He knew that man was going to rebel and sin against Him. That's why He made a way for us to be made right through His Son, Jesus. So behind man's actions, or we say standing over or ruling and reigning over man's actions is the sovereign God. And what I mean by sovereign is that God has the power and the authority to rule over all. Nothing happens outside of his will. Nothing catches him off guard. That's what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying that that God had both foreordained and foreknew the crucifixion of Jesus. So God was in control. God is in control of all things. Even these hands of these lawless men could only go so far in the persecution of Jesus. And even though God foreknew, though, that doesn't mean that man is not responsible for his actions. That's why Peter also says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. So what we see here is this this incredible truth that God is sovereign... And man is responsible. How do we reconcile those two truths? 
How can we say that man is sovereign and yet God is still ruling and powerful and reigning over all? So some see that and they tend to think, you know, we tend to think our minds think that either God is sovereign and in control or man is responsible. And so we pit these truths against each other. But clearly here in the Bible, Peter himself does not see that, the fact that God is sovereign and man is responsible for actions. These are not contradictory. They're complementary truths. Though we may not fully understand how God's sovereign ordination of events is compatible with human responsibility, we must admit that both are taught in Scripture. It's not an either-or situation. And so we have to understand, on the one hand, we can't fully wrap our minds around how this works out. We simply have to take responsibility for our own sin, for our own wrongdoing, yet also know at the same time that God is in control and His plan is never thwarted. So friends, I'm not saying by any means, God, God is not the author of evil or sin by any means. So however you come to understand God's sovereignty, we must never think that we are not responsible for our sins. Or that God takes pleasure in our sins. Or, or that He is blamed for our sins. Brothers and sisters, verse 23 shows us really what Paul is saying in Romans 8.28. In Romans 8.28, Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Peter is saying, This horrific act, you are responsible for, and at the same time, it's all a part of God's perfect and sovereign plan. Friend, we can have hope in knowing that God makes all things work out for good. No matter how difficult, no matter how, how bad the situation you may find yourself in may seem, God is somehow, if you are trusting in Him, God is somehow working it out for your good. How do we know that? How do we know that God is doing that? We see that in the cross. Right? Where the, the most wicked act that the world has ever seen, where the only truly innocent man who ever lived, he suffered and died for wicked and sinful men and women, boys and girls. God uses that most wicked act for what? The greatest good. What we see at the cross, which is the most wicked act in all of history, actually being at the same time, the greatest act of good as well. Because it was here at the cross where Jesus took the place of sinners who would trust in Him so that they could be saved. Saved from hell and saved from eternal death and separation from God. And for this reason, we know that God means trials and difficulties in our lives for our good. First, think about all the things even that has happened for us in this last year. Not meeting together for a while. Doing the online thing, however good or bad you may have think that worked. Doing the outside thing. Having this, the, the virus, having fires, having wind and rain and power shutoffs. But think about all that God has done in our church, even in that time. The evangelistic opportunities we had as we distributed thousands of meals throughout the creek fire. The, the, the missions giving that, that has stayed 
faithful throughout this year of, of not all of us being here together. Think about all of the good that God was working in the midst of what would seem like very dark darkness. It's just a shadow, really. A reminder of how God works all things together for good. And we see that ultimately on display at the cross. You know, sometimes something horrific happens. And we may be tempted to adopt an unbiblical or philosophical explanation for why bad things happen. And, and, and maybe you say, well, God didn't, God didn't know that was going to happen, or God didn't want this to happen, or whatever unbiblical explanation someone might grab for. Peter is absolutely certain here that in this horrific act, God was in this. This happened, the death of Jesus happened because God willed it to happen. Things don't happen and take God by surprise. Friends, I can't think of how anyone would find comfort in the unbiblical way of thinking that God isn't in control or that He isn't reigning over this world He created. That He doesn't have power or to do His plan or to do His purpose in people's lives. What, what hope will we have in, in going through trials or, or going through the loss of a loved one and someone coming up and saying, well, God didn't mean for this to happen. What comfort is there in that unbiblical way of thinking? There is no hope. There is no comfort in that. But friends, here is comfort and hope for the Christian life. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Friends, all things, even great difficulties, a virus, a pandemic, fire, wind, even things we don't understand, sickness and death, God is working all things for good. And friends, think about it. When you read through the Scriptures, where does God always show up mighty in Scripture? When things are going smoothly? Now, it seems like when things were going smoothly for Israel, what did they do? Turn their back on Him, right? No, no, God always shows up mighty in Scripture, when things are going bad, think about the Exodus. The, the people are enslaved, yet God leads them out of slavery. They're about to be crushed by the Egyptian army, by the, by the sea. And what happens? God leads them across on dry ground. Jesus is crucified. He's buried in a tomb. Yet what does God do? He raises Him from the dead. And that's what Peter is saying here as he goes on in, in verses 24 through 32. that he, He's speaking about God raising Christ up from the dead. Of how that was planned just as Christ's death was planned, His resurrection was planned as well. The death and the crucifixion of Jesus was not the end of the story. God raised Him from the dead. Look with me at verse 24. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He did this. God did this. He raised Jesus up all as part of his plan to save his people. To put an end to sin's reign in their lives. And his plan, David actually foresaw. That's what we see in verses 25 and following. He's going to quote from, from two different psalms here. 
uh, is from Psalm 16 here and then later from Psalm 110, saying, look, the Old Testament predicted that this would happen one day. David foresaw what God would accomplish one day. Verse 25, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David's words here in Psalm 16 are, are too great, are too wonderful to be fulfilled in David. Now Peter points out that, that where David says, where you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, what he's saying is, is that's not about David. David is speaking of Jesus. Look with me at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, he's saying, look, David died. He was buried. You could go to his tomb that day and his body is still there. But Jesus, who David was speaking of, his tomb is empty. It's empty not because somebody stole the body. It's empty because God promised that he would raise him up from the dead and he did. This Jesus, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So they saw the crucified, buried body of Jesus, and they also saw the resurrected Lord. And because Jesus, without sin, He is the only one who is able to conquer death. That is why He's the Messiah. He's the only one who could save His people from their sins. And not only that, it says God didn't just raise Him up, but now He's exalted at the right hand of God. He quotes from Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35 said so the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool so Jesus is exalted to the highest place of authority in the universe the right hand of God and, and Peter is saying that's not David who is there it wasn't David who was ascended to this position it was David looking forward and seeing the exalted Jesus at the right hand of God in ancient times, the right hand was identified with greatness and strength and even divinity. Now Jesus has gone there and He has sent His Spirit to fill us. His Spirit to equip the church to go and to be His witnesses. And this is the one to whom Peter calls our attention. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom they despised and they rejected, the one whom they crucified, God had sent and now has confirmed as both Lord and Christ. In other words, King and Savior. The one whom we follow and the one whom saves us. Lord, King. 
Jesus being Lord actually refers back to a prophecy of Joel that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It shows us that this is the this is the Lord that David was speaking of in Psalm one ten. He is the Lord because He is Christ. He is Savior, the resurrected Son of God, who has power over sin and death. Peter's statement here makes it clear that something new has happened through the work of Christ. That salvation is offered in Jesus, who is Lord and Christ. His salvation is offered to all people. There's hope. Because He has taken His people's sin upon Himself at the cross so that they won't have to face the wrath and the judgment of God. But notice how He ends. Verse 36. He ends with, Whom you crucified. He repeats that. And so, there's a contrast here happening in this sermon. At the climax of Peter's sermon here, there's Jesus who was accepted by God who was confirmed as Lord and Savior, as Messiah and Lord, Lord and Christ, by Him being raised up from the dead and exalted to His right hand, contrasted to the people's view of Jesus, who rejected Him and crucified Him. So friend, what about you? Is Jesus your Lord? And your Christ? Or, or does your view line up with the people here? Rejecting Him. Friends, Jesus is the Savior King of David's line. Who brings the blessing of forgiveness of sins and peace with God to His people. Yet they rejected Him. That's the message that verse 37 says, Cut them to the heart. Has it cut your heart as well? Friends, God calls us to Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. So have you trusted in Jesus? Is He your hope for life? Or have you rejected Him? Friends, if you have not trusted in Him as both Lord and Christ, turn from your sins today and place your faith in Him. Because there is life and salvation found only in Jesus Christ. So whose responsibility was Christ's death? Who crucified Jesus? Who was responsible for His death? There's an old hymn called Were You There? that was sung by our enslaved brothers and sisters before the Civil War. And it goes like this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble tremble, tremble. And then it goes on, were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? And the unspoken answer is yes. Yes, you were responsible for his death. No, not were you physically there and, and crucifying him, but, but not physically yelling out, crucify him. But you would be wrong to not see your face in the crowd. Did you kill Jesus? Were you responsible for His death? Yes, it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. And our sin cries out, crucify. We are all responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But you know what? That old hymn ends with this last verse. Were you there when God raised him from the tomb? Were you there when God raised him from the tomb? The resurrection is God's stamp of approval that salvation from your sins, that that, that salvation has been finished and completed in Jesus. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, God, the King of the universe, came to pay the penalty for our sins. And that penalty was infinite. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. The eternal Son of God Himself must come and do what we cannot do. Satisfy the payment that we cannot pay God. That is why He came. That is why Christ came and He has satisfied that payment fully. Because on that bright Easter Sunday morning, He walked out free for your salvation. The, the resurrection of the Son of God, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is God's way of telling His people, of declaring that all those who have trusted in Christ, of declaring that your sins are paid in full. Friends, when Christ emerged from that grave, He did what none of us could do. He completely satisfied the wrath of God. He did what none of us deserved salvation from sin so we're about to sing vainly they watch his bed vainly they seal the dead death cannot keep its prey he tore the bars away friends if Jesus has been raised from the dead then no matter what happens in this life If you have faith in Him, everything's going to be okay. Whatever you fear the most, you are going to be okay. And you're going to be more than okay because you will get to experience the riches of His grace for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Christ died taking the punishment for our sins. And Lord, we thank You that He rose from the dead so that our salvation is fully and finally completed. So that we could experience the riches of Your grace for all eternity. Father, if there are any here today who have not trusted in You, may they see Your grace through sending Your Son, Your only Son, whom You love, to die on the cross for their sins and to rise from the dead so that we can have hope and that we can have life for all eternity so that we can know that everything is okay because Your Son is ruling and reigning over all. So may we trust You, may we be faithful, and may we be Your witnesses of this incredibly good news. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.